Vancouver. <laughs> Welcome to the Canucks Hour. I'm manning the P's and Q's in the gondola and just had a little bit of an issue there. But happy lunch break. Welcome to the Canucks Hour. Uh, Canucks Hour, of course, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion t- takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come. With fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. For more information, visit avenuemachinery.com. I'm live coming at you from above the rink at Rogers Arena where the Canucks just concluded practice. The practice itself was a departure, a significant departure from a battle and conditioning heavy practice on Tuesday. This one, a lot of time at the whiteboard, a lot of work on special teams, a lot of learning, a lot of game plan preparation ahead of the Canucks game against the San Jose Sharks on Thursday. The big news coming out of Canucks practice today, Matthew Highmore has rejoined the club. His levels finally have hit the point where he can skate with his teammates. He said he was asymptomatic throughout his uh, absence on COVID-19 protocol. Today, we're going to have a lengthy one-on-one chat, which we pre-recorded during Canucks practice with new Vancouver Canucks general manager Patrick Alvine. We will get to that in just a moment. Uh, Alvine was very cagey about... What's coming next for this franchise? Uh, We asked a lot about his career, his path to get to this point. And then, of course, we dug into some of the trade deadline stuff. And generally speaking, Alvin cast himself in a patient light. He's still waiting to solicit opinions from the now seemingly unwieldy staff that Jim Rutherford has built, which with him at the helm of this new look Canucks Hockey Operations Department. Uh, This is a man known for his preparation, known for being detail-oriented. In a lot of ways, he was buying time during this interview. He was saying that he still needs time to formulate his opinion. We'll we'll let you hear that in his words, but this is a very patient, deliberate executive that the Canucks have landed and put in the role of general manager, and you'll hear from him at length on everything from American League development to approaching the deadline with due patience to what this club is hoping to build, and why his vision uh, extends over the long term. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, Overall, though, as you look through what we saw at Canucks practice today, Highmore back, Chason looks like he'll be on the outside looking in. We still don't have clarity on exactly where Hughes will play in the Canucks lineup when they play the Sharks tomorrow, but that's a big game. The Sharks are the 20th place team by point percentage in the NHL. The Canucks are 21st. Uh, This is a game in which you can leapfrog one of the Pacific Division teams that you need to chase down if you're going to have any hope of making the playoffs. And the Canucks' hopes of making the playoffs are already slim in the extreme. Of course, it's those slim hopes that have caused the chatter, the anticipation, uh, everything that comes with the trade deadline silly season to be amplified and turned up in this market, right? More than the results of the game's What feels like it matters is what this organization, what new organizational leadership can do to get this franchise back on track and competing with the best in the league. We chatted with length about Alvin, with Alvin about those topics, and we'll roll that interview for you now. And joining us on the Canucks Hour is new Vancouver Canucks general manager, Patrick Alvin. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here. I'm uh, excited to... to, um to join you and uh, get to know you here and uh, the fans as well. So you've been on the job for almost three weeks, but you've only really been in the city for 10 days. Correct. <laughs> how is, uh, how, what are your first impressions? Have you had time to do anything at all? 
Uh, you know what? It's been uh, very busy here. I've been basically walking uh, from my hotel to the to the rink uh, long hours, and uh, I was able to get out on a run here on Sunday. So uh, it was a beautiful uh, Sunday afternoon, so it was fresh. But I haven't really explored much of the city. Are you a candy guy? A lot of Swedes are candy guys. Are you a candy guy? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I try to stay away from the candy. It's not healthy for you, I guess. I, I hope you're having more success than I am. Uh, there is a Swedish candy store in Yaletown. I don't know if you've been pointed in that direction yet. Carameller. Don't tell me that. Yeah, taste of home for you. (laughs) Um, So we'll get into why you're so busy on the back end of this, but I I wanted to start because you're new in town. You know, I think we're still, our listeners are still getting a sense of who you are. So you had a lengthy hockey career. You played a few years in North America and you were a shutdown defenseman. Is that fair to say? (laughs) Is that a tactful way of putting it? Well, I, I don't want to. I don't think we need to talk about my career as a player there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that really interests me about it, Patrick, is you retire in 2001, right? And you immediately become a scout for the Montreal Canadiens. There was no post-playing career time in the wilderness, figuring out what you wanted to do. Clearly, I mean, to me, I see that, and that tells me that you're someone who loves the game, someone who wanted to be around it. Can you describe to us the transition from player to management and, and how you got your start with the Habs organization? Yeah, no, I, I was very fortunate uh, uh, being connected with uh, Montreal there. Um, you know, one of the original six franchises there and, and great people. Uh, I got hired by uh, by uh, Andre Savard, was a, was a general manager there, and then Bob Gainey was there as well. So uh, very fortunate to work with those people. Um, I... To be honest, I probably thought I was going to be a coach, uh, but I, I thought I needed to learn a little bit more about the game, and I thought that was a great opportunity to get into the scouting there. Um, but as we uh, as as I get on with scouting, I, I put the coaching hat on the side. So um, that was, you know, again, very fortunate to get into Montreal, learning about the different cultures of, of uh, European hockey and... and uh, uh, fortunate to travel over here um, in, in North America for with Montreal, but, but um, and then um, I think two, 2006 when Pittsburgh uh, cleaned house, there, Ray Shearer was coming mm-hmm. in as a general manager, and actually Andre Savard took uh, become the assistant coach to Michel Thierry, and, right. and, and uh, that's how Andre got me over to uh, to Pittsburgh. Right, and of course you spent a long time in Pittsburgh with. Regard to scouting, though, and the idea that maybe originally you thought you might be a coach, was there a moment that it clicked for you? Because the life of a amateur scout isn't the most glamorous, right? There's a lot of time in the car, a lot of time drinking bad coffee at arenas. Um, was there a moment you thought, I love this. This is great. This is what I want to do. Yeah, it was. You know what, though? I, I, I think at that part, you know, just being around the game and watching a lot of hockey, you learn a lot, and and you're meeting a lot of interesting people. And and I had the fortune to work with a lot of, you know, uh, current GMs and 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 and, and hockey executives um, uh, around the league. I mean, uh, when I started in Pittsburgh with Ray Shearer, there, uh, Shaq Fletcher was a assistant GM uh, for a couple of years and, and was able to travel with him a little bit and now he's the GM in Philly um, Jason Botterill who was a assistant GM in Seattle now he's uh, he was in Buffalo uh, obviously Bill Aguirre Tom Fitzgerald um, Don Waddell was there for, as a pro scout um, and just being around those people and I think that's where um, I don't think you ever be, become perfect and, and, 
and know everything in this game. And that that's, for me, I wanted to learn. Um, you know, every day I get to the office or, or being out in the game, I think I always have something to learn and, and um, never be satisfied. I, I, that's what, what thrives me. Well, after you got hired, I talked to a lot of those gentlemen that you just listed. And in addition to commending you for your skills as a host whenever they went to Europe, they uh, they all talked about your preparation. Like preparation was the word that kept coming up. What did they mean by that, do you think? Well, I, I, I want to be a detailed guy, and, and I'm a, a process-driven person too. So I think in order to uh, make the decision, we're going to have a structure in place here. And... Uh, we're going to trust our, our scouts being out uh, on the field, and we're going to we're going to uh, have input from the analytics people. But if you have a if you have a structure in place and uh, you have a process, I believe that every decision you makes uh, making is is easier for you. Well, and the deadline, which obviously we're approaching, is a stressful time. Does having a framework or a process for that type of decision making does it make navigating? those pressure moments easier is it essential in those moments more than any other absolutely i believe so i i believe uh, you know i think the players want to have structure on their eyes and i think that the hockey ops want to have a structure and be accountable for um what their job too so uh absolutely with regard to your pittsburgh tenure right the club obviously has a ton of success wins three cups during your time there uh, and then obviously back-to-back with Jim Rutherford. You sort of moved up the ranks. You became the director of European scouting, then the director of amateur scouting, um, eventually an assistant general manager. You were the interim GM for 10 days or so um, after Rutherford uh, resigned. What, in your view, was the key factor that allowed that organization, and in particular, I mean, we all know Sidney Crosby's not walking through that door right now, but... In terms of the ability to find those players that were previously anonymous and all of a sudden you check the box score or whatever and they have 20 goals playing on the line with Crosby, it was it was a conveyor belt of useful NHL players seemingly pulled from thin air. What, what was the key factor that allowed that organization to have that success in that area? Well, good question. And I would, again, go back to, uh, you know, creating uh, a culture and environment uh, for people uh, to so we can empower people. Um, you know, the, the obviously the standard and the expectations were high on the ice, but I think the standard and expectations of the hockey ops people was even higher. Um, there was no ego on the staff there, and we all wanted to be better every day. And we were trying to, you know, because when you're winning, you know, you, you know that everybody wants to beat you. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to get better? I think, you know, I was talking to the staff here and I said, after you win a cup, it's a big relief. But immediately the next day you want to get better. And I think that's something we talked about, like how can we gain competitive advantage? What can we do different? And I think that's where it amazed me with having um, – a lot of quality people around, uh, you know, with their input and their knowledge, and, and everybody's working towards the same goal. Botterell told me when I was chatting with him after your hire that one thing he was that always struck him about you was that as an amateur scout, you had a good sense of how the development side goes hand in hand with acquisition. Um, can you elaborate on that? Like, what, what, what specifically is he thinking about when he discusses you in those terms? 
Well, I, again, I, I was very fortunate to uh, be put in, in a lot of different situations to learn in Pittsburgh. And, and I think if you, you know, my knowledge about the European hockey and, and what it, you know, some difficulties it could be for, for some of the European players going through, um, you know, the coming the transition coming from Europe over to North America and, and more about the mental side of it and how you deal with, with certain players. I, I think they trusted me in, in, in helping out in the development part there. Um, same thing, you know, they, they had me around the, the uh, Wilkesbury uh, team there for years, building mm-hmm. a relationship with the coaches and, and players. And uh, um, again, just we had a structure in place and, and the people, they, you know, they trusted me to do my job and, and listen to my uh, input and opinions over the years there. So, I, again, I was very, very fortunate to work with a lot of good people. Wilkes-Barre obviously was a crucial development tool for the Penguins. I mean, you look up and down the lineup of the back-to-back cup teams and there's a ton of players who spent time there. There's also a head coach who spent time there. Um, you've been to Abbotsford a few times since you've come out. What steps, in your view, need to happen and maybe you haven't even made the decision yet but what steps need to be made to get the Abbotsford Canucks up to a similar level in terms of filtering talent up to the NHL roster yeah no I I I, I want to obviously watch Abbotsford here I think there are a lot of good people in place here um, again I think we need to just put an identity of a Vancouver Canucks put a structure in place and and uh, get into work. Uh, I think there's a lot of work behind uh, every successful team in the league. Um, and that's where, you know, I, I'm looking forward to, to spend more time with Ryan Johnson. I think he's done a tremendous job. Um, and I want to help him, you know, with the resources, but, but also making sure we have a plan and structure for, for each player. I think you've got to remember that, that uh, each player has a different path to the NHL. And there is not a sprint for the younger players to get to the NHL. It's a marathon. Uh, we don't want them to be playing 50 games and, and you're done. We want them right. to, to, to have success long-term here in Vancouver. And, and sometimes uh, sometimes that, that means you're going to spend an extra year in, in Abbotsford before you're ready. Um, with You've talked about process a little bit, and I'm always curious to ask this, especially with people who have amateur scouting backgrounds and then move uh, you know, up the ranks and become a general manager, sit in the big chair, as it were. It, there's an old saw in hockey that you can see enough games as a GM to be dangerous to the process. Is that something you have to be aware of, particularly considering that that's your area of expertise as you now sit uh, as the GM of this club? Absolutely. It's it's easy to go in and watch a couple of games and have an opinion. That doesn't mean that's the right um, opinion about the player. So that's where I need to challenge my staff um, quite frequently. Every every decision that's going to be made here, it, it's it's based, again, on the process leading up to the decision that, that we want to hold our, our scouts and, and uh, staff members accountable. Jim Rutherford is said to be a executive who tends to like having lieutenants, as it were, who challenge his view, right? He, he kind of likes to hear the word no sometimes. No, that's a bad idea. I think he probably tests people, too, by throwing out ideas just for them to kick around. What has been your experience working with Jim? What do you expect the dynamic to be like now that you're working you know, as a general manager under him as a president of hockey operations? 
Well, the, f- the first thing with, with Jim is that um, I've, I've been impressed with his op- be, how open-minded he is mm-hmm. and want to thrive for, uh, you know, the success. He, he's never satisfied. And I think that's contagious for every single one of us working underneath. And he really trusts and empowers his staff. And he doesn't want to have people that are just going to agree with him. Uh, and, and neither do I. Um, there's going to be some 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 big uh, you know discussions and arguments, and, and in the end of the day, we're going to we're going to make a decision what's best for the Vancouver Canucks tomorrow and for the future. On the day you were hired, Jim Rutherford described this club as facing some big decisions, and we're now five weeks out from the NHL trade deadline in this market. It's all it's all we're talking about on the airwaves, anyway. Uh, you've been handling calls. You've been fielding the phone calls from rival general managers. What's the level of chatter out there? How much interest is there in a variety of Canucks players? Well, I think, uh, you know, from my perspective, I still uh, uh, want to evaluate what we have here. Uh, it's one thing when you're, when you're working for another team and, and you don't really know the players and the staff is good, mm-hmm. but um, I, that's what I'm trying to to watch a practice, getting to know the people and the staff members and, and evaluate the players. So, um, hey, I, I think um, around the league, there's, you know, obviously everybody's looking for good hockey players. What are your first impressions of what you've come into in terms of uh, the on-ice, uh, the NHL team, the NHL roster, where they're at as a club? Well, obviously, uh the rough start they had here uh, with the changes, it, it's never easy for, for anyone um, with changes mid-season. Uh, I give the, uh, the players a lot of credit for fighting their back um, in the standing here, and, and um, they have a chance um, to still make the playoffs, and, and credit to, the, to, uh, to Bruce and the coaching staff and the players for putting themselves in a, in a position in the second half to compete for, for a playoff spot. Is it challenging to evaluate a roster that starts that way and then does what they've done since? It's almost like two teams. It, does that make it harder to know what you have on the NHL roster at the moment? Yeah, and I think that's where I don't think there is a rush for us to do anything here. Um, you know, we're still you know five weeks away to the trading deadline, and I, I want to take take the opportunity to watch watch this team closely and see you know um, get to know the players better and. Obviously, Jim have been here for a little bit over two months now, so he has a better feel for, for the players here. You're an amateur scout. You're a talent evaluator. This club has been said to be lean on the prospect side at this juncture. Um, does that match your evaluation? How, how important is it to bolster that, I suppose, whether it's in the next five weeks or in the years ahead? Well, I think that's uh, it's always important to have a, a, a good. If you want to be a good team, you get you need good depth. Uh, you need a pipeline with players, and you need players who, who's going to come up here and, and uh, compete for for spots. You want to have uh, you want to have an internal competition. So I think that's that's important. Um, again, I think that uh, Brian Johnson and Abbotsford have done a, a really good job with the you know with the with, with the players they have, uh, but but. But obviously, we, we uh, want to create an environment where we can attract uh, European and, and college free agent players to come here to, to Vancouver and Abbotsford uh, to become better and be part of a winning culture. We'll go with one last one. 
as you look at this team, right, which still has a shot at the playoffs and has performed far better over the course of the past two months, but still stands, you know, in the 20s, uh, the, the low 20s, but in the 20s nonetheless by point percentage at this point in the season. Um, you're looking at a team that doesn't have a ton of cap flexibility for this summer, uh, relatively lean on the prospect side as it stands. You don't have a second-round draft pick this upcoming year, so you, you don't have your full arsenal of, of draft pick weaponry, as it were. Um, how big is the task ahead, and, and have you been able to come to not, not like a full idea, but a, but a basic idea of, of what needs to come to get this club to where it wants to be in terms of competing with the best in this league? Well, good question, because that's the reality we're facing nowadays with the cap. It's, it's a very, you know, the, the parody of the league. It, it's it, it, They've done a good job. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 I mean, that's where I, I, I don't, again, I don't think we want to rush anything here, and, and we'll take our time and, and definitely utilize the, 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 the quality of people we have on our staff here now to get, I, I want to hear, you know, the people that been here, the, 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 the Sedins, uh, Ryan Johnson, Stan Smeal, I, w- I want to hear their opinions. Uh, you know, Cammy Granado and Emily Kesnagay coming in here now, I want to I wanna, I wanna hear their opinion about how, how they see things. And uh, um, again, for us, it, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Uh, you know, you, you want to, hey, everybody wants to win. I think, you know, the reality is that probably 30 out of, 31 other teams want to win the Cup too. Uh, but I think uh, we want to be a good team over time, so it's not a, a you know a decision that's going to help us to be successful one year. We we want to be good over time. That's that's what we're basing everything on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Patrick. Yeah. Welcome to Vancouver, and we'll have you on down the line. Great, thanks, Thomas. That was Patrick Alvine in conversation with the Canucks Hour, and we'll get into it more after the break. But I thought. The insistence on patience was characteristic, uh, exactly as Alvin's been described to me by those that know him best, his former colleagues in the industry. Uh, this is a guy who likes to gather information, uh, but when he acts, he acts decisively. And while he mentioned the club's playoff hopes, while he mentioned the credit due to the players and Bruce Boudreau for the way that this organization has turned its on-ice results around, in the latter 24 games of the season, following the cataclysm that was the opening 25, you know, he discussed at length the long view. What does that mean? How, how do you take the long view with this roster in a way that just tweaks it, right? Doesn't that suggest, if this is a marathon and not a sprint, that in fact we may see the sort of fireworks that Alvin is not yet ready <laughs> to commit this organization to? Over the course of the next five weeks leading up to the March 21st NHL trade deadline, I suppose it's a Rorschach test of sorts. You can hear what you want to hear in it, but I'll tell you what I heard in it, and we'll get into what should happen and what will happen for the Canucks between now and March 21st on the other side of the break. You're listening to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. some difficulties it can be for, for some of the European players going through, um, you know, coming the transition coming from Europe over to North America and, and more about the mental side of it and how you deal with, with certain players. I, I think they trusted me in, in, in helping out in the development part there. 
Um, same thing, you know, they, they had me around at the uh, uh, Wilkesbury uh, team there for years, building a relationship with the coaches and, and players. That was Patrick Alvine from earlier on the Canucks Hour. We had a lengthy one-on-one with the new Canucks GM. We'll react to that and get into what the club should be doing ahead of the deadline, which is on March 21st, only five weeks away, actually less than five weeks away, in the second half of the program. The Canucks Hour, of course, is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. For more information, visit avenuemachinery.ca. All right, so we're talking about the Canucks. We're talking about what should come next, and we just discussed that at length with Patrick Alvin. And Alvin, while cagey and not tipping his hand and, and being characteristically deliberate in his approach, still said a lot that we can read an awful lot into. Uh, again, he was very, very deliberate in, in answering our questions and in making sure that he didn't commit himself to a course of action one way or the other. In part, I think, that is just true, right? That's just true. This club still has a chance of making the playoffs, obviously, considering the economic damage wrought by the pandemic over the course of the past two years, particularly for a live sports and entertainment product like the Canucks. Like Rogers Arena, frankly, which hasn't hosted large concerts, at least not at the volume that they would have in the before times over the course of the past two years. You know, making the playoffs, getting that revenue would be huge, would be huge. You'd expect the club to want to see what they do, especially this week, especially with a pair of games against the Sharks and the Ducks, two teams they're chasing in the Pacific Division, although two teams that they could well catch, like honestly, they could realistically catch and still miss the playoffs and not by a little bit, right? Like you could still be better than the Ducks and the Sharks at season's end and still find yourself well outside the playoff picture in fifth in the Pacific Division. Honestly, honestly, if I had to bet, I'd bet that's where the Canucks end up ahead of the Ducks and the Sharks and still well behind the four teams in the in the Pacific that have shown themselves to be more consistent and more imposing this season. Um, the big picture takeaway for me from what Alvin talked about was the idea of this not being a marathon uh, or not being a sprint but a marathon and the idea of wanting to build something where you're a good team for years, for many years, right? Taking the long view. And for me, if you're taking the long view, that necessitates a level of aggression over the course of the next five weeks and, and probably beyond to not exactly retool this team, right? You're not making tweaks, in my view. You have to reload what this organization has. And, and the most important thing to carve out, in my view, is options. You need options in, in life in any game you play, in any business you're in, you want to have possible solutions to whatever problem you're you're having. And currently, the Canucks don't have options. They just don't. The way that this club is set up, right? You're looking at about $13.5 million in cap space for this summer, and that's assuming that everything stays status quo with Yaroslav Halak and his $1.5 million overage penalty. So $13.5 million, that's with Brock Besser still to resign, and Tyler Mott, who's a pending UFA. That's a tough spot to be in. You cannot rebuild a blue line for $13.5 million. Uh, by the time you get Besser done, which which soaks up at least half of that available cap space, 
you're returning the same team uh, with a you know another backup goalie, another depth defenseman, and maybe another third line lottery ticket type forward. Um, that's not going to get it done. We've seen that that's not going to get it done. And I know people want to point to how the club has played since the Boudreaux hire as evidence that it will. But the fact is, is that although the club started out 8-0-1 under Boudreaux, since the calendar flipped to 2022, they've only won consecutive games on one occasion in mid-January. <laughs> Other than that, it's been a win-loss, win-loss, win-loss sort of setup. They just haven't been able to sustain success. And when they come up against elite teams, it looks like the Canucks' win on Saturday against the Toronto Maple Leafs, where even Bruce Boudreau said it looked like we couldn't keep up in the second half of the game. For me, if you're a Canucks fan, if you're a long-suffering Canucks fan, maybe you got into this team when you were, you know, seven years old in 94 because you're roughly my age. Maybe you remember the first Canucks fever of 1982 as the moment you fell in love with the game. Maybe you've been a fan since the beginning for 51 years. Maybe you were devastated on Black Tuesday when the Canucks won three, well, or sorry, one, as if, lost three consecutive draft lotteries to begin uh, the franchise's existence at the, in the NHL. Whoever you are, maybe you got into it during the West Coast Express era when the Canucks were like the only team in hockey playing an entertaining style. However and whenever you got into it, right, the fact is is that you're here to see this team achieve something great. You want to see Canucks players and this city celebrate the way they are down in Los Angeles today, where they're hosting the LA Rams Super Bowl party. You want glory, right? History. You want to, you want to witness and buy in on the ground floor of something special. And, and how do you build that when you don't have draft picks, prospects, cap space, or a team that's good enough to do it? You have to. You have to. Begin to create a base. You have to reload a, a baseline of options so that this club can build what they're hoping to build. And, you know, I, I'm going to be writing about this a little bit later tonight for a piece. But for me, if you want my five-point plan for, for what a, a perfect trade deadline looks like for the Canucks, right? It begins with cap space. And I think it begins with cap space for, for Alvin and for Jim Rutherford, too. I think they know well the score. They know what needs to be accomplished here. So step one begins with cap space. And for me, the goal that I have for the team, or would have, were I in Alvin's seat, which of course I'm not. I'm, I'm the guy interviewing him. But were I in Alvin's seat, step one would be to clear at least $10 million in additional cap space, right? So that then now you're looking at if you can take care of that. And it doesn't matter what shape it comes in. Maybe it's a bevy of mid-range deals, Maybe it's trading a, a key player. Maybe it's trading two key players. Uh, maybe it's just moving off Halak. Uh, that creates an additional $1.5 million because you duck the overage. Plus, you do one of the big ticket items and one of the mid-range items. Whatever. Doesn't matter to me. The goal for me would be $10 million in additional cap space. Because if the Canucks look up this offseason and have $25 million to play with, then you have avenues to improve. And and it's not about having the space to go after the top free agents. It's not that you're going to go court Claude Giroux, right? It's that you now have the flexibility to take advantage of the opportunities that naturally arise in a hard-capped league. And we've seen this organization make those deals. Some of the deals that have been most celebrated that this club has made over the last two years, the JT Miller deal included, are deals that are products of a team having cap space 
and getting a player from a team that can no longer afford them for whatever reason, right? Um, if you look around the league right now, like one of the reasons that the Rangers are in the driver's seat, right, linked to everyone from Mark Scheifele to Riley Smith to JT Miller, is that they have the cap space to take on a player like that. That gives you, you know, it gives you options. Cap space is the most vital resource because it allows you to pounce on the opportunities that arise. Number two, step two, would be to acquire a 2020 first, 2022 first round pick, obviously, with a chance of becoming unprotected for 2023, or even further down the line. This isn't just the Connor Bedard take. This is also the, if you can kick an asset down the line so that you have a chance at hitting a home run, that's the most valuable asset in hockey. It's it's an asset that you're, you know, it's a bet for sure. It's a bet. But that's what bets are. Bets are things that look small now, but could pay off massively down the line. That is the number one asset that this club should target, right? We've seen in Colorado the types of dividends that that can pay. Um, you're only getting that asset if you're trading a s- signature piece, a really, really good piece. And so, you know, by even suggesting it, am I suggesting something closer to a detonation than a re- retool? Yeah, I am. I think it's necessary. Three, prioritize draft picks ahead of young players age 20 to 25. We know that the Canucks are interested in a, a you know an asking other teams around the league in trade talks about players between the ages of 20 to 25. They've already been publicly linked to guys like Vital, uh, Vitaly Kratsov and Pavel Zacha, Zaka. Excuse me. And I would expect we'll we'll hear some more names <laughs> as the weeks you know go on as the as the calendar flips to March and as the trade deadline nears inexorably. For me, and I made this analogy yesterday, right? Young players between the ages of 20 and 25, those are like gift cards, right? Draft picks, draft picks are like hard cash, especially when they're joined to real cap space. The thing with draft picks is people look at them and say, well, maybe if it pans out and you nail the pick, you have a player in two, three years. But the point is not to use all of them necessarily. It's to position yourself to be the team that lands Devon Taves the next time that situation arises. It's to position yourself to be the team that lands JT Miller the next time that situation arises. It's to position yourself to land Pavel Busnevich for a song the next time a situation like that arises. Draft picks, again, draft picks, cap space, uh, a pick that could pay off majorly down the line. These are all avenues to improve, and that's what the Canucks need, and that's what the Canucks don't have. Their hands currently are tied. Step four, either extend Tyler Mott on a team-friendly deal or monetize him. And we have another piece up at The Athletic right now, and you can go read it. Um, it, it's, you know, trade, keep or resign and goes into the case for and against, uh, each course of action for Tyler Mott, Connor Garland, JT Miller, and Brock Besser. And Tyler Mott's the only player in that group who's not under some manner of team control beyond this season. We've seen this club repeatedly bleed value in unrestricted free agency, right? Tyler Toffoli, Jacob Markstrom, uh, Chris Tanev. Alex Edler, you know, dating back to Dan Hamhus and Radim Verbata, just a ton of useful NHL players, guys who'd go on to have success, guys who had success here, guys who at various points in their careers had major, major trade value. 
I mean, you could throw Ryan Miller into the equation. You could tr- you could throw Troy Stetcher. There were there were points in Troy Stetcher's development where he would have netted at least a second, and some think a first was offered to him at one point during his Canucks tenure for him at one point during his Canucks tenure. Managing assets also requires that you avoid bleeding value in every case in unrestricted free agency. Where this club is, with how slim their playoff odds are, you cannot afford, you cannot afford, period, to have Tyler Mott walk out the door for nothing. Now, all of that said, I don't think Tyler Mott is a slam dunk guy you move on from. Tyler Mott is the best. Like, he's the best. He's the perfect bottom six forward. He fits the mold of what this team wants and needs more of. He's an elite penalty killer, and this club can't afford to spare elite penalty killers. He's fast, and this club's not fast enough. He's a master at, at playing against the grain, countering, uh, hitting teams on the counter, punishing mistakes. Um, his mental health advocacy, his work ethic and practice, everything about Tyler Mott screams that he's the type of person and competitor you want in a good organization. But if you can't get it done by March 21st, you have to monetize him. It's actually a really simple equation. I don't have a problem with extending Tyler Mott. I think the world of him is a player. I don't have a problem with trading Tyler Mott for a, for a decent pick. I think the interest in him, considering his cap hit, considering his utility, considering the way he performed in the playoffs during the bubble run, um, you know, all of that. I, I don't have a problem with either path, but you need to make that decision and you need to make that decision decisively. The only thing that's truly unacceptable is to keep Mott and not make the playoffs. And and the Canucks just do not have good enough playoff odds as it stands today to keep Mott beyond March 21st. A decision one way or the other has to occur. I'm okay with either option, particularly if the contract is team-friendly. It makes sense for where this group is. Isn't in that Brandon Tanev mold, especially with where this team is at in their building cycle. Although I'm okay with that in the event that they clear other cap space. But... A decision one way or the other and acting decisively on Tyler Mott. That's step four. Step five for me is prioritize upside ahead of all else with any futures required. And, you know, the Rangers have obviously been a big topic of conversation. It feels like that negotiation is spilling out into public view. Uh, dueling media reports on on prospects and asks and, you know, what what you should take back. Here's the thing about that Rangers deal. Or about the Rangers' prospects, anyway. And this is just an illustration, right? You've got, in New York, the sexiest names, right? Especially on the blue line. And this market loves to talk about Braden Schneider. Ke'Andre Miller is an an exceptional player. Already an impactful NHL defenseman uh, at the age of 22. There is a player in Hartford, mostly, although he's also played some NHL games... Who, for me, you know, doesn't get the same accolades or attention because he's not as big, right? He's not as big. Plus, he's a lefty. And this club has lefties. OEL's not going anywhere. Jack Rathbone's the best prospect in the organization. Quinn Hughes is a fixture, right? So why would why would you go get a, a lefty unless it's Ke'Andre Miller, who could be a huge difference maker for you? Well, for me, this organization's issues are so significant that you just can't worry about something like, do we win the trade on the day of? Is the prospect sexy enough to excite our fans? Um, Is he right-handed? Is the defenseman we're acquiring right-handed? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We're talking about a club 
whose lefty defenseman, the guys who played the most minutes on the third pair of their of the left side of their blue line, is Brad Hunt and Kyle Burrows, who's a righty. Like, come on, you need everything. There's nothing you don't need. Like, you need goaltenders, you need defensemen, you need forwards. Maybe not goaltenders, but you need forwards and you need defensemen. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Prioritize upside in everything you do. There's a real chance that Zach Jones is the best NHL player of the Rangers' fourth defenseman. Just because he's not a player who grabs headlines or who you've read a ton of on top prospects lists over the years doesn't mean that he's not the right target. Just get the guy who could be the home run hit, right? I think the Canucks will also look for probability. I think they want a volume of players pushing. I'm not sure that they'll take that approach, but that's the approach they should take. This is a club that needs everything. And for me, for me, I would just go for upside in every respect. Again, not reporting anything, just talking about a, a situation that's been on the tip of the tongue in the Vancouver market and spinning it a little bit. We'll see what route the Canucks take. Like one thing, as Harmon Dial, my colleague at The Athletic, and I got into when we when we <laughs> discussed the idea of what they should do with Miller, Besser, Garland, and Mott, is that we sort of came to the conclusion that I just outlined with Mott, right? One way or the other, you make a decision. Um, don't have a huge problem with either decision. JT Miller's next contract, I know it's a, it's a topic of concern, but it's likely to be decent value, to be totally honest. JT Miller's probably going to end up being, at the very least, a useful middle six guy well into his 30s. He's probably a top-of-the-lineup piece for the first half of even a long-term deal. Like He's a useful player. He's a useful piece. There are definitely, definitely two sides to the argument on, on what the club should do with JT Miller. Brock Besser and Connor Garland? I mean, the difference is that Garland is locked up, and you know exactly what he costs. But we're talking about a 24- and a 25-year-old player. These guys are within the window where if you applied the are they part of the next great Canucks team test, you could reasonably answer yes for both. The thing to remember is that both have probably more on-ice value for this team. Garland is their most consistent offensive player at 5-on-5 this season, and Besser is a guy who's had a down year and has a contract situation that will sap some of his trade value. Um, you know, the fact is, is that keeping them considering those underlying circumstances makes sense. And yet we've got a text in calling me a hypocrite said they can turn around in two years like Florida. And then you say they need to detonate like what you're weird. <laughs> well, guilty is charged on the last bit, but I want to address this because there's actually no um, there's actually no conflict between those two ideas. What did Florida do on the deadline before they changed management? They traded Vincent Trocek. Vincent Trocek's a really good player. Like, a really good player. His line with Andrei Svechnikov might be the engine that drives the Carolina Hurricanes up front. And the Carolina Hurricanes, they're in with a real cup shot this year. What did they do in free agency? They allowed Mike Hoffman, a consistent 30-goal scorer during his time in, in Florida, and Evgeny Dadanov, consistent 55-point guy, one of their top-line wingers, to walk. And they used all of that cap space, the Trocek cap space, four, four plus million, the Hoffman cap space, the Dadanov cap space, and, and both totaled something like $9 million for the last year that they played in Florida. All of a sudden, they had $13 million in cap space. And they went out, 
and they did Lomberg, Gudis, Declare, Verhage. Uh, they claimed a ton of defensemen off waivers, one of whom even became Gustav Forsling. They also took some swings that didn't work. They signed Vinny Hinestroza. Didn't quite work out. They traded for Marcus Nudavara. Didn't quite work out. But they made a volume, a high volume, of smart mid-range bets. And when they all hit all at the same time, which you can't expect. But, I mean, you can't expect the hit rate that Bill Zito had that summer. But when they all hit, the team was better and deeper and built itself into the absolute offensive buzzsaw that we see today and that we'll watch tonight play the Carolina Hurricanes in a game that is absolutely cannot miss television. Then Jack Eichel will debut against the Colorado Avalanche. This is like a beautiful day if you're an NHL fan, and I highly encourage that you open up your schedule and and tune in to watch some out-of-market hockey tonight because it's as good as it gets in the regular season. The Panthers did detonate. (laughs) <laughs> they they jettisoned three top six players, three top six forwards in a, in the, in a matter of four months. Like they did detonate, and they did it with a purpose. They did it to open up cap space. The return that they got for Vincent Trocheck was lesser in value than Vincent Trocheck brought to their team on the ice. But because of the avenues for improvement that they opened. Right? Because of the weaponry that they gained, they actually were able to take a short-term step forward because of how quick, how savvy they were in making bets, smart bets in free agency, and, and how they used those that uh, available cap space. When we talk about the Florida model, we are actually talking about detonation. Like We are talking about moving out assets, and that's sort of the other thing that Harmon and I discussed privately, but didn't end up putting in the article. So I'll give you the B-sides to the athletics content today on the Canucks Hour. One thing we discussed is, you know, in a vacuum, we don't think it makes sense, a lick of sense, to trade Besser or Garland. However, if you did all three guys, if you did Miller, Garland, Besser, or even two of the three, if you went about opening up the $10 million in cap space that my five-point plan calls for, then you open up avenues to take advantage of the situations that may arise this offseason, of the pl- very good players that may become available. And, and I mean, just look around. Like, the Pittsburgh Penguins, for example, a team that we talk about a lot in this market since we've basically imported their management group to run the Canucks, they have Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, and, and, um, and Rust to re-sign this offseason. All are pending UFAs. They have about $22 million in cap space, which seems like a lot, but it's going to go fast when you're talking about players like that. Like, Brian Rust might be a $5 million player, might be a $6 million player, considering his under his counting stats and his contributions to that organization. Uh, look at Toronto. They're always walking a tightrope. Are they going to be able to bring Kasha and Engvall and Kerfoot back? Or could you get one of those guys if you accumulate the requisite cap space and the rec- requisite draft picks? You know, look at Florida. Florida's got Alexander Barkov's extension kicking in, and they're going to have to start planning for Jonathan Huberto's extension. And then things get really tight, really tight, really fast. There are a number of players on that team that could help this team, obviously. Uh, Uyghur's expiring, too, so that's a, that's a tough situation for them to navigate. Colorado Avalanche, they have Nazem Kadri to resign. Kadri's having a career year. He's going to be a top-five NHL scorer at year's end. Outrageous. Good for him. In re-signing Kadri, 
the Colorado Avalanche are going to have to do some surgery on their roster, and there are a number of players that could have a JT Miller-like, not not to that extent, because what JT Miller has done since arriving in Vancouver is truly remarkable, but that type of impact, if you position yourself, if you position yourself to avail yourself and take advantage of the opportunities that arise in a hard cap league, you can improve quickly. The hardest thing to do is to build around the edges of a roster, right? Where you don't have quality young players coming, you don't have the cap space, you don't have the draft pick weaponry to realistically bolster this group. It begins with detonation, at least some manner of detonation, but it doesn't have to be about getting draft picks and waiting four years and hoping they pan out. It begins with getting cash. It begins with not gift cards, cash. It begins with getting and giving yourself the type of options you need to set this franchise back on track to mine value in everything you do and and get yourself back trending in the right direction, which this this city, this market has been waiting for 10 years for someone to do with, with some degree of foresight and planning. Um, that's the task ahead of Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford. To na- for this to this point, they have cast a patient gate in describing their plans. They haven't tipped their hands. We're waiting to see what occurs. Anyway, just just one guy on the radio, but that's my plan. That's my five point plan for what a successful Canucks trade deadline could look like and why. This has been the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. Thanks for listening. I'll be back tomorrow, and Jamie Dodd will be back in tow. All the best.